Hello again, and welcome to the second installment of the Lunk Communique. Once again, I'm Jackson Meredith, and I'm surrounded by these three hooligans who are named... Monty, Brian, and Andrew. Today, we want to discuss something that's starting to fall off the headlines here, so we want to bring it up one last time before it sort of slips down the memory hole in this culture, and that was that big corporate bailout that happened about a month before the elections. Does anyone, anybody want to start and explain this a little bit? For those who maybe were living under a rock a month ago and didn't, who don't necessarily know what this B word is? No. Does that fall to me? <laughs> Alright. Well, the, the bailout was basically a chance to uh, give a lot of money to these companies that have been overextending themselves, taking more risk than they could handle uh, in, in an abstract sense. So they allotted, basically created currency to distribute to them according to uh, some sort of need, whether they were going to go bankrupt or not, to try to save them. And that's, that's how I see it. So and which companies were these? Well, they're still doing it. I mean, they're still allotting this, these funds. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah, those banks. Are, those banks. big corporate banks. Yeah, that's that's what they started out with. I'm not sure whether it's going to be limited to banks who they're going to bail out, but they they're also um, financial institutions in, in general is what they're trying to banks save at this point. In the auto industry, we'll see. They, about no, that's just it, though. That's that's sort of the the recent development is now. Well, let, let's back up just a little bit and go into some numbers. The big plan that got signed into law involved a $700 billion gift. That's billion with a B. A $700 billion gift. No strings attached to, I mean, I mean, Citibank is getting, I think, $300 billion of this money. They decided that Citibank is going to get about, Citibank alone is going to get about half of this bailout money. But yeah, obviously some of these other banks that they're going to split it with. And the, the big development over the last week or two, the three big the three big auto manufacturers in Detroit have come forward and said, uh, we want a bailout now too. You better get us some money. And the three of them have basically said, that they're in danger of going bankrupt. I mean, GM and Chrysler have said they could be bankrupt by the end of the year if they don't get this money, and that Ford probably won't hold out through the end of the winter of 2009. So who is going to be ruined if they don't get their bailout? I mean, whose lives will be ruined in these companies if that doesn't happen? Who needs this money? Like, needs it. Like, what are their names <laughs> and addresses <laughs> and phone number? It's mainly the the uh, people that are in control of the, the corporations, I would imagine. Whose to a lesser are. extent, the workers. <laughs> Whose names are? I'm not even familiar with their names. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> They'd probably prefer to stay anonymous. And that's kind of the point. 
I mean, I think I saw, I mean, there was an episode of Michael Moore's The Awful Truth several years ago where he was sort of confronting this where, you know, we don't really know who these people are. I mean, obviously he asked his crowd, which was a little more savvy and a little more intellectual than maybe the American public at large. And he said, he asked the crowd, Who, who's the president of the United States? Uh, Bill Clinton. I think this was probably 1999 or 2000. Well, Bill Clinton's president. We all knew that. It's like, so uh, do, do you guys all know the name of your governor, of your U.S. senator? And yeah, most people do. Most people who are sort of politically savvy know that. And he goes, okay, got another question for you. Who's the, who's the CEO of Ford? Who's the chairman of General Motors? Who's, who's in charge of General Electric? Nobody knows those names. And he goes, now let's, let's stay with this just a little while longer. Now, guys, who's more important? Who has more power in the world? Is it the President of the United States? Or is it the Chairman of General Electric? So, well, it's, it's probably the Chairman of GE, Mike. Isn't it kind of funny, then, that you don't know his name? Do we know his name? <laughs> I don't. What is his name? At this moment, yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> know. But, uh, but these are the people who are getting money from us to pay for what exactly? Well, to keep their their plants going, I would assume. Does you're talking about the you're talking about the automakers, automakers right now. Yeah. And yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to see too. I mean the, the 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 contrast to me is really striking. A month and a half apart, two months apart from the big bailout for the banks. So the banks, the banks came out two months ago and said, give us, give us, no strings attached, give us $700 billion or else. Or else the economy will fall off a cliff. Give us $700 billion. And everyone in Washington, and of course their, their pet media at CNN and Fox and NBC said, okay, every penny you want. Not a, you know, obviously they had to, they had to bring out some some token voices of criticism because it was wildly unpopular, and there was really quite a groundswell of popular resistance against this. Nobody nobody in the general public liked this, but elite opinion was basically undivided. It said, "Let's do it. Let's give them every dime they ask for," and you know, and, and you know George Bush had a big press conference. And, you know, McCain was hanging out under his right arm, and Obama was hanging out under his left arm. And he said, we all think this is a good idea. We all think this is necessary for the economy. What exactly, what is it that entitles these people and these banks and these companies to this money? Why, why, why should they have, why should they have it? That's kind of a funny thing, too, because... You know, theoretically, under this alleged, you know, sort of free market system, the idea is, well, you know, you take some risks, and if you fail, well, that's too bad. You know, if you, if you succeed and you make lots of money, that's yours. But if you fail, oops, bankruptcy for you, and then you're toast. That, to me, I see as the largest contradiction in the free market is the sense of entitlement that exists that coexists with power. You look at property rights and you consider that, well, yeah, everyone is equal and that they can own property. Yet, obviously someone at some point annexed the property to begin with. 
just like the people now are in control, they have this power and they have this this sway and they obviously get the rewards for that. And someone in a large company can go into vast debt higher than we could even imagine and they can bounce back because they're given a lot more credit than you and I could ever hope to have. Now, obviously, you can, we can see... We can see this double standard in the in the in the government's reaction to who's suffering in the economy. We can see this double standard going back just a little bit to the subprime mortgage fiasco, which is one of the underpinning causes of this financial meltdown. And you know, I mean a year ago, two years ago, when everyone who had these these scammy subprime mortgages were losing their homes, you know, the political line in Washington was, oops, you lived beyond your means. Not our fault that you're losing everything you own. And now, you know, a couple of years later, the banks that added a couple of zeros to their asset portfolio by giving out all these scam loans, they started to collapse too because people weren't making their payments having lost their houses a year and two years ago. And they said, oops, we messed up. You better come bail us out now. So, And there's this, there's one more quick thing. The, the idea, you know, there's this idea that's bandied about in, you know, in respectable press. The idea that, the idea that, you know, these, these banks, these companies are too big to fail. It's the idea that one of these corporations, they have so much power and so much wealth. If they were allowed to go bankrupt, like, say, all the people they scammed on those subprime mortgages, it would cause, you know, this, this, this sort of nightmarish domino effect where all the companies will collapse until the, the economy is turned to dust. Well, what I am wondering is how, how and why are these companies failing and by what, by what, definition is being used to judge this failure if and is it a failure would you say or anybody uh, I mean they're if you would ask me I would say that they they're the ones to fault if they um, took on more uh, loans than they could handle where it's it's got them into trouble now. I mean, they're they're the ones that are at fault for it. I would say. Well, I guess the question I would ask is, what happens when a a bank defaults? You'd have a bunch of extra houses on the market that would be cheaper to sell. You would think. It's it's funny. I think there was, I mean, there was a statistic. I think the city the city I'd seen something. The city most affected by the subprime collapse was uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And there were actually reports there that one in ten homes on the market, I mean, brand new homes in, you know, brand new lily-white suburbs were just being bulldozed to the ground. That they were being destroyed to take them off the market and bring property values up on the existing properties because there were just too many damn vacant houses. And I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a scam in it. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a scandal in itself. When obviously brand new houses are being demolished just because they're a, they're a burden to the owner. And to me, to uh, sort of make 
take a macroscopic view of this, this is the inherent flaw in supply and demand, especially when you have a monopoly on the market or any sort of large power. You're, you're not trying to supply the demand. You're trying to manufacture demand for your supply. So it completely turns the model on its head. And they, they do the same thing with, with crops when they're having farmers intentionally burn burn crops to create shortages and drive up the prices. I mean, dairy farmers who are mm-hmm. who are paid government subsidies not to milk their cows because mm-hmm. there's already too much milk on the market. Or to to sort of tie it back to, you know, this this latest piece of of the bailout picture. I used to talk about the idea of manufacturing demand. You have, you know, the automakers in Detroit who've been losing money for years in the wake of raising high, higher gas prices because they insist on selling the these very profitable but increasingly unpopular sport utility vehicles. Something that I hear, or have heard a few times, even from people who don't like the idea of the bailout, is that it's, it's, it's an unpleasant thing. Uh, I don't like it, but it has to happen. There's no other. There's no other way out of it. If we don't do it, uh, I guess bad things will happen. What exactly are these bad things that will happen if it if it was if it were not put through? To me, it's it's a market chain reaction. The system has developed over a recent years to work on a line of credit. Companies run on a line of credit rather than having actual funds. So basically, it's a domino effect of all companies that are operating on credit. Which is really the entire system over the last hundred years. So will our, would our entire socioeconomic structure just completely collapse without this bailout existing? I, 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 I've not yet understood this argument that basically the apocalypse will occur if these banks and companies don't get their billions of dollars. Well, to me, this basically just shows how capitalism as a system cannot work without the state backing it up. Proponents of laissez-faire capitalism, libertarian groups, like the Libertarian Party, uh, they'll basically state that uh, you know the market can control itself and and there's this invisible hand that will, you know, justly um, distribute the wealth, and that's just not how it is. I mean, if you look at what's going on now, we have these corporations that have basically screwed up. So the government has to come in and bail them out, and no one's bailing out the people who are having their homes foreclosed upon. So it, basically, it just goes to show that it doesn't work. In that respect. To me, it's addressing the system of how wealth is distributed. Monty, you asked the question, or you, you made the statement of addressing this issue that it has to be done, that it's a general view that this is something that has to be done. The money has to be taken from public funds created through public means and given to corporate interests. There's obviously no question of where else could we distribute wealth in our society. It's as a given that it needs to go to those in power, those that are running the system, and those that 
that keep others dependent on them. That that itself is a given. I can definitely I can definitely understand how if this money this money isn't put up and given to these uh, these people executives or companies plants uh, that you know prices will be raised and jobs will be lost mm -hmm. all of these horrible things but is that a, is that is that a cause of not compensating these people or is it is it just they just want it they're they're going to get their money no matter what well they will get their money no matter what and the whole idea is if this financial system is allowed to collapse they'll be the only ones who get paid and so the argument is is that we should just give them their money that's the best thing to do well they're basically holding the economy hostage is what it comes down to extortion so what should be done i say let it collapse <laughs> I mean, the only bad thing about that is that well, if it collapses, the population doesn't have any alternative, so that most people wouldn't if it know how to live. If it collapses, people are going to starve and yeah. and not be able to take care of themselves and lose their homes and die. That is, unless there's an alternative ready to take the place of, of the, the system that's now collapsed. But the, the whole problem with that is that most of the public isn't aware of how they can organize themselves and they can produce for needs instead of basically playing the game of the capitalists or production for use yeah. rather than production for profit for, for profit I mean the, the reason there's this economic collapse now is because that's just the nature of the system that it's just based on production, it's on profits, and when there's a surplus of, of product, um, I guess what am I trying to say is, when there's, when there's a surplus of product, the, the need goes down, so the, the economy collapses at that point, and then it has to be revived using um, basically what... Uh, the new president, what the the Democrats have in mind, is basically redistributing the wealth to people that are more likely to spend it. If you if you if you try the trickle down thing, the wealthy people, most of them have everything that they want. They're not big spenders. If you if you distribute stimulus packages to uh, to the working class, the people that aren't extremely wealthy, they're more likely to put it back into the system and, and help revive the system. If they're so, not just going to throw it to the banks to pay off the debt on their credit cards. It, it's, it's not that um, it's not that there's just this real this altruism that you know Obama and the Democrats want to just give people money because they're in trouble. It's more that they want to give money to people so they'll spend it and they'll revive the system. It's the way I look at it. I want to go back a little bit and address kind of what you were talking about with the culture of dependency. Now you look at the average working class person, say someone who's been working for the last 15 years at a fast food restaurant, the economy collapses. What sort of useful skills do they have in everyday life? What have they been doing with their lives? They've been taught a very specialized task, something to do every day, and as far as... Uh, finding something else to do, that's all they've really been taught to do for the last decade. 
So and this really isn't just the fast food drones either. I mean, you could be an office worker and be trained on on the peculiar bureaucratic tendencies of that particular office, and that's that. Those aren't survival skills. Or an, or an auto line, or a a meat shop, shop, anything like that. I mean, especially manufacturing and that sort of thing. There's lots of jobs out there who do the same monotonous thing every day, and that's all you really know. Yeah, I, I think. I don't really view that as, as much of an issue because there's, I think every person is capable of, of doing useful work. And if we did have to reorganize society and, and put everyone to work, um, I think that anyone could pitch in, whether it be cleaning or, or whatever they know how to do if they, if they're not, um, if they don't have a, a profession that they're trained in. What you have to consider there, however, is the learning curve. If you have to teach an entire society how to do a varied set of skills, what is that going to take? I mean, at the point where people decide that they need to be autonomous and work for themselves, how many people are already starving? But the, t the type of organization that I would envision, there wouldn't be uh, those that are producing would distribute what's produced to those who need it. Um, there's already a surplus right now of food. The majority of food in the country gets thrown away. We have enough We have enough food to feed everyone. Well, there, there is a large surplus. Obviously, the issue is distribution. Yeah. And if, if networks were to break down, there would still exist a surplus, but how would it be distributed? Because these, these resources are managed by the elite. Once the system of management breaks down, people would have to entirely reorganize that. There's a reason that the workers themselves don't manage the resources, because then they could easily take over the system. It definitely wouldn't work how it's set up now, because we have, you know, your food is shipped all across the world, and there's not really a lot of, it's the way things work right now, it's not set up where... A community can be uh, sustainable on its own because we we rely so much upon shipping things, which is just unnecessary. Uh, a lot of the things that could be grown locally really aren't. We just would rather import them. And we have we have orchards here in Nebraska, for instance, and yet when you go to the grocery store. The apple juice has all, has all been shipped in from Argentina and China. And it just doesn't really make any sense. Well, I you mean, know, in the capitalist sense, it does make sense due to market abs abstraction. Yeah. You can produce something somewhere else cheaper than you can produce it where you live and bring it into the market. So basically, we have goods being shipped from all around the world for basically no reason other than profit motivation. Right, basically... And it's you, destroying you, the world with gases and being created by or, or emissions from vehicles that are shipping and everything else. I mean, we're, we're coming to uh, labor value theory here and devaluing other countries in general, where their currency has less value, so you can easily strip them of resources and bring it into your country rather than having to utilize the wealth that exists in your country, you can exploit other countries. Did you have a question, Monty? Well, because currently 
at the moment, most of society cannot conceive of, let alone support, uh, any any other kind of system. D does then the bailout become something? Does does it become sort of understandable to support it? Because if I'm Mr. Janitor, I want to keep my job. And if paying a little more taxes are going to let me do that, uh, I can see why I would. Well, I'm first of all, I'm going to address a disconnect here in that this isn't directly coming as tax money from people. This is wealth that's generated. It basically devalues the rest of the currency because a lot of this is made up out of nothing. And that's how they're allotting it to the corporate system. So in a very real way, in real time, they're taking value away from the currency that exists. They're basically just creating wealth and giving it to these companies. So as, as to um, how that's tended to in the future, I don't even really know how they're going to deal with that. But they, I've heard it suggested that they are also planning on taking other currency out of the market in other ways to do that. But they're basically just creating wealth for these companies. It's just a process of manufacturing wealth and handing it over to these companies. It's just a, a matter of, I mean, right now, it kind of does look like uh, the sort of socialism for the rich is needed because we can't, we can't just let the economy collapse until... Because society is dependent on yeah, them but to it, exist for us to exist. What, what we need to do and what, what, what we need to focus on is making people understand that they're not, that they're just playing a game that they're not they're not producing for needs they're producing t for power f for someone to retain their power and to to um, grow their wealth and i want to back it up here we're talking about we're talking about, we're, again, we're talking about finance capital here we're talking yeah. about banks like citibank they're not producing anything yeah. they are speculating on wealth there's no production here at all it is it's a question of speculation so we are being called on to meet their speculation? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, these, they, sort of, they sort of allotted themselves this wealth and this profit from these scams like the subprime loans. And it's like they opened up their bank ledger and just added a couple of zeros with a magic marker. And then when they realized that money wasn't actually in their account, now they're calling on Washington to make those zeros real. And what's scariest to me is that there really is no accountability. You're just handing over money. And what precedent does this set? That grossly going out and grabbing as much wealth as you can and taking huge risks as a large organization, the larger you are, the more you can exploit people and grab money and the less accountable you are. I plan on making $10,000 tomorrow. <laughs> Give me $10,000 basically what's happened it was like there's a there's a bit of a saying you know if you if you owe a bank one hundred thousand dollars the bank owns you if you owe a bank one hundred million dollars you own the bank <laughs> something something that the mainstream media doesn't talk about a lot is that 
absolutely none of this is new. Right. And this is basically what's happening is actually pretty intrinsic to how things work. And obviously the way they represent it as, is as an immediate crisis. Well, this, and, this just happened. Look at these market fluctuations. Now we have to fix the market. Could, it's not a long-term pattern that we need to consider in any way or fix. It's just an immediate out-of-pocket bailout. How, how dire is it, though? Could this really be the collapse of, of capitalism as we know it? Well, now that we have a new president and we have new organizations <laughs> and we can get things right on track again, we can fix these problems, can't we? <laughs> I would say look at the Great Depression. Was that the end of capitalism? It, it, yeah. it very well could have been if not for that that welfare state for the rich that yeah. developed. Now, of course, from a popular standpoint, it was kind of wonderful because that welfare state for the rich was also applied as a welfare state for everybody else to a little lesser degree. And the popular support did sort of get on onto that sort of bandwagon. But so, so it acted as sort of a pacifier to people. And that's, that's sort of the upshot of it, where if they hadn't extended that welfare state protection to the rest of the population, there probably would have been a revolution. Yeah, the thing is, when you lower the people's expectations so much, when you're starving and you can't get any money, how easy is it to pacify people? How easy is it to lower the expectations we have as a society? That's... That's the one of the main problems with the idea of, of a welfare state or a social democracy is that it it does satisfy the people for a time being, but it doesn't really affect the underlying problems um, that are associated with with capitalism. We're coming up on the halfway point of this hour already. You are listening to the second Lunk Communique. We're talking about the bailout today. And um, I think that the reforms, the more of the the, the welfare reforms, the, the giving, redistributing wealth back to the the lower classes, is almost necessary for uh, for the system to work because that's a, a way to prevent disorder from the people actually rising up against the system that's holding them down. In a sense, in its rawest form, capitalism is a system that drives all wealth to the top 1% who has all the power and all the control. And eventually it reaches a point where all the money is in the hands of people who don't spend any. And that's the point where the whole consumer thing collapses and the system goes into depression. And one thing I would like to address that is very pertinent to this is the the concept of progress within a capitalist system. Now, if you're talking about pooling wealth into the hands of the few, eventually, yeah, we are going to come to this critical point, and obviously someone has to pay the dues. You have to pacify the society once again so that it can continue on. Is this, is this apparent economic crisis that we're having... Uh, is it the logical conclusion of capitalism? Is is it is it 
Is it something that in a capitalist system is going to just naturally happen eventually? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, capitalism is, is predicated on this idea of perpetual growth, continuous growth. As long as the system is healthy, it is growing. And, you know, you know, the Dow just keeps going up and up and up. And this idea of just, you know, we have to be just wealthier. We need to have more stuff. And it's, the thing is, this is a finite planet. There, there are limits to material wealth. And I mean, this, this, this growth, I mean, they sort of imagine it and they speculate it and they put it in their pocket before it's real. And then, you know, more to a, to a degree, they're able to sort of satisfy it in reality by, by, by pulling the wealth out of somewhere, by, by plundering a national treasure, by, by squeezing it out of the blood of the third world. But there are limits to what, there are limits to how, how much they can satisfy this sort of imagined wealth they're sort of fantasizing about because it is a finite planet. So really the, the boom and bust is, is inherent in the system. It's just always going to be there. There's always going to be recessions and depressions and there will be periods where the economy is booming. And to me, the way to look at this is motivations. What is the motivation of a capitalist or a, a large company? It's to continually generate more and more wealth. And that means taking more and more risks. And eventually you're going to take more risks. You're going to imagine more wealth than you can consume. Well, because this is a finite planet and resources are finite, I often wonder... What exactly do the people who run these corporations plan to do once they run out? I don't, they aren't stupid enough to believe that, that they can just keep going, can they? And they, they said they have to have some kind of eventual plan. I mean, well, what are they going to do when everything is just done with? I don't think they're thinking that far down the road. I think that they're just thinking about filling up their pockets. To me, it's a matter of immediate competition. Each one wants to be the top dog on the block. They want to knock the other ones off and take their shares. Well, it's kind of difficult to be the top dog when everything on the planet is dead. <laughs> That's what I mean, you would think. This, you would think that at least they would keep that in mind. Well, this 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 sort of corporate mentality—it's all about the next quarter's profits. A lot of these people aren't necessarily thinking more than three to six months into the future. I mean. I mean, really, I mean, the traditional attitude in Europe toward the planet's resources, I mean, the traditional sort of European Western attitude is that the planet is inexhaustible, that it's a gift from God and it'll just keep giving as long as there's a God in the heavens to sort of bestow it upon us. And, I mean, in the first place, this attitude dies hard. I mean, obviously, it can't be accepted rationally, but it's still it still gets grandfathered into people's attitudes. It's still sort of there. There's a lot of people who really, they, they might grant, I mean, in, in an argument that the earth is limited, the earth is finite. But when they go about setting up their business plan, they don't really think about it. They don't really believe it. And of course, the, the other thing now is we're sort of tooling around with, with rocket ships and the stuff. You know, a lot of them are just thinking... 
we'll use this planet up and then we'll just start extracting wealth yeah. out of the rest of our solar system. That's another thing, though, because w w one of one of uh, one of one of the issues that is sort of popular, or is at least considered in culture to be true, is that uh, things like NASA actually don't have much money and it's something that I've noticed and it's it's a part of what I'm talking about is that well why why aren't billions and billions of dollars being poured into like the space program so that we can then go and ruin another planet well I mean in, in a way they, they there is some funding there but it's also interesting I mean a lot of this funding is essentially I mean it's it's sort of military research and development and there's a you know there's sort of a thrust in this country toward militarizing space and you know the whole idea of if you can have if you have a colony on the moon or if you have a a set of satellites you can use them to control the rest of the world there's there's not really a long there's really not really a long-term attitude for the people who are really running the planet as far as I mean, actually using a space program. I mean, that's more of a that's more of a trendy attitude in pop culture. The sort of the idea that that Mars is our lifeboat once we exhaust this planet. There really doesn't seem to be a lot of there really isn't a lot of momentum or a lot of thought in elite circles from what I've seen about actually trying it. And to me, when you look at resources, the issue of scarcity is is interesting in looking at how resources are used. Because the more scarce something is, the more these large companies are going to vie for it, the more they're going to go for it. Now, space is a long-term solution, which is pretty alien to anything we're talking about. If there's a little bit of oil left, it becomes exponentially more valuable. The more resources used up, the more they're going to want it. So they're going to use these resources to the last drop, if at all possible. In the 50s and 60s, that was a very popular thing, the whole idea of we're, we're going to go, we're going to colonize the moon, and you know, by, 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 by 2000, where we'll be like going to Mars and all of these things, that sort of died out. Do you think that that's going to come back now that it's becoming obvious that we're going to be using stuff up on this planet? Well, I would say in the first place, that space exploration and that sort of that drive to colonize was really, really in vogue in the fifties and sixties, primarily because I mean there was a big I mean it was a big pissing contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean it was sort of a it was sort of a bragging rights thing and it was sort of a you know, space rockets are sort of a there's sort of a convenient front for testing the next generation of, say, ICBMs, you know, nuclear missiles. So are you kind of saying that this is is a uh, propaganda mill to generate revenue for the military-industrial complex? <laughs> and it's just, it's just another, it's just another line on the ledger for their funding. Obviously, it's just, you know, as as easy as it is for them to say, well, we need seven hundred billion dollars at the Pentagon this year. There are some people who complain. So, I mean, if they want more than seven hundred billion dollars, well, you know, like we're looking at this at this the current administration, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq aren't even counted into the Pentagon budget. That's supplemental funding. So they get their seven hundred billion dollars to build new planes and tanks and missiles. 
And that doesn't even count where the military is actually active today. So that's that's supplemental funding. And as far as if they want to militarize space, that doesn't even go into the $700 billion. That goes into the NASA budget. So the ruling class really doesn't have much of a plan for what they're going to do? There's, there doesn't seem to be much of a plan. I mean, if you look at, like, the doomsday scenarios, uh, the, the two, to me, that seem to be the most plausible seem to be uh, ecological disaster, either caused by ourselves, by this uh, sort of, by capitalism, basically, by just production for profit without any regard for what it's doing to the planet. And then the second would be some sort of cataclysmic uh, uh, event, like a, like an asteroid strike or something. It doesn't seem to be any plan to protect the planet from those two things. There's reforms to kind of reduce emissions and be more responsible, uh, but it, it's just too too little, too late. I mean, we already have. I mean, we know that that global warming is occurring, and we know that the the water levels are rising, and that the, the weather patterns have become more severe, and the ice caps are yeah. melting, the skies filling up with carbon dioxide. Yeah. Because I have noticed that, you know, it, it seems like there does, uh, there does seem to be awareness starting to happen among these, these, these people, the, the ruling class. Mm -hmm. I mean, environmentalism is becoming more popular among them, and global warming has suddenly become a big issue with something, all, all of a sudden now this Whether is, they like this is something that we recognize and we have to fight all of to a sudden. To me, that's, that's mostly the market. It's becoming new because it's becoming a profit venture. I mean, people are making money off of producing windmills and producing alternative energy, and eventually that's going to be a market. There is some slight it's, forethought in that. It's it's not it's really not even about money though. I mean, it's just I mean, th there are enough people who are starting to realize that we are dooming ourselves here, and I mean, they are to a degree. They're they're smart enough to know that. Oh, okay. We're we're on the we're in the process of dooming our grandchildren to extinction here, or you know, we're all we're all twenty something, so we're talking about our children if if not ourselves, you know, Darwin forbid. So are we doomed no matter what? Is, is, is anything we do never going to be anything other than too little too late? I think, I think fundamentally we need to replace the current system with something else. That seems, well, how, that seems to be the only, the only thing that will save the human race. How likely is that going to happen fast enough to beat the end of the world? Well, I mean, here's the thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna steal the mic here to give my my canned optimistic answer, so we don't go too far off the doom and gloom cliff here. <laughs> Sorry. And the the thing, <laughs> the thing about it is, okay, we might have a hundred years to save ourselves, we might have fifty, and the thing is, you know, we can either go, well, it's too late, we're doomed. If we say that. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. If we give up now, it is over. And if we fight, it might still be over. But we don't know that it's over yet. So if we, if we, if we have to start fighting now and just hit it with everything that we have, and maybe, maybe we can just pass that iceberg just a little bit and not get our ship wrecked. But if we don't try, it is over. So we have to, we have to at least 
we just got to give it all we have starting now, and maybe we have a chance. And that's that's at least something to fight for, something to live for. And I would look at the model of the system now as encouraging uh, the destruction of the world because taking care of of uh, ecology is not a good way to make profits. And ultimately, profit is the ultimate end to what you want to do within this system. So we, we need a system that doesn't address profits, but addresses what's actually needed. And how do we reach that point? Do, do, we, do things need to get worse before they can get better? Do we need the economy to collapse? Do we, do we need things to go to total crap before people will make changes? Um, to me, it's an issue of the people being in power, having no real sense of accountability. You look at a company that pollutes the water or pollutes the air. Hey, we're only doing 5% of the pollution in the air. Hey, we're only um, polluting this river. We're only polluting this. There's, there's The world is divided into small kingdoms, and uh, they're only doing their part. Ultimately, they're not to blame. So there's really no sense of, of social or environmental accountability within this system yeah. to any of these companies. Well, we, we don't have a world community, really. We have lines drawn up, land ownership, um, national sovereignty, people um, not working together as people. We have nations working against each other for profits, for resources, and that's the main problem. And while we're trying to save the planet, the people that are aware of the situation, we have nations warring with each other, um, just really fighting amongst themselves while the planet goes down the tubes. So I, I think we need to talk about alternatives and, and how do we get to those alternatives. One thing that you brought up I think is very important is how private property is defined. Now, you look at a large company and they're going to want to take as much value out of their private property as possible. But say you live in an area and a company is using an adjacent plot and they're dumping chemicals into your groundwater. Well, too bad that's their area to, to dump in. If it completely destroys the value of your property, then you as a person have less rights than a corporate interest. So their property rights outvalue yours as a person. Do um, so. Should we protest things like the bailout, despite the fact that if if things like if things like that aren't passed, uh, you know, people's lives can get ruined. I think, I think we. I think you have to make the argument that people's lives are ruined every day when the system is working normally. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about people's lives being ruined in, in, in a way that that to them convinces them that it's because of people like us. We're causing the problems. We're, we're the ones making them lose their jobs. You know? You look out at this, this culture, and the average American has something like $8,000 worth of debt. I mean, these are people who are already sinking in this system on a, I mean, on a gradual basis. So they sort of get they sort of get overlooked, and you want you know you want to raise their taxes to pay for this bailout, or you want to you know 
completely devalue their currency with inflation by inventing currency to give to the corporations in the bailout. And you're really, even just this sort of solution is really just adding to the problems of these people who are already sinking in credit card debt. Most people don't understand that. And, I mean, what... And if, if, they, if they aren't aware already, I don't... I hope you know how to do it, because I don't. To me, this comes back to social awareness. Now, uh, looking at statistics where the top 10% thinks that they're in the top 1% of the wealth bracket, look at the other end, where I really doubt that most working class people realize that they're in... that they're so below the poverty level in in terms of owing more money than they can make, and that that's that's um, synonymous with the lower part of the working class, with the working class in general, really. And why do people owe more money than they can make? Uh, well, if you look at consumerism, people are very much encouraged to live beyond their means. I mean, it props up our economy. And then you get back to, of course, economic collapse, when people are propping up the economy with money that they don't have. So people, So people think that... Most people, uh, especially in the working class, I mean, the ruling class already has all the money, but um, most people in the working class seem to uh, seem to think that if they can uh, just think like someone in the ruling class, then they can live that and achieve it. Uh, and this this kind of philosophy. Of, it's, I mean, it's kind of the opinion of this philosophy of mind over matter, which is, I mean, it's just, it saturates the mainstream. It's this idea of, well, you know, if you aren't getting ahead, it's because you don't have the right attitude. You need to be, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's a very capitalistic, it's, you have to be aggressive, you have to take risks, you have to be bold. Isn't that what just got all these damn banks in trouble? Well, I mean, that's. That's a very interesting way to analyze it psychologically in pushing consumers to buy more. You have to live the life if you want to have the life. Well, it didn't get, it didn't get them in trouble. It got us in trouble because we're the ones paying for it. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're getting their money. Well, that's, that's the, the class difference to me is that they're allowed to live that way, but we're not as working class people. Of course, the, the other cliche that comes quickly to mind on this line of thought is like, you know, it's this conventional wisdom, you have to spend money to make money. Yeah. Which is that same sort of thing, too. It's just, you know, you have to, like, prove you're a higher class of person with, an ex with expensive clothes, with a flashy car. And obviously a lot of, a lot of working class people buy into this crap, too. Well, in, in a sense, it's true. The ruling class does spend a lot of money to make money because they have a ridiculously higher portion of the wealth. They have most of the wealth, so they can spend more than we could even even comprehend to continue that cycle of expropriating wealth. I, I posed a question a while back, and I don't think anyone ever offered their opinion on it, but do things really need to get worse before any of these alternatives um, to capitalism will be seriously considered? Well, to does me, capitalism need to collapse and do people need to be out of work on a large scale? Does 
does do people need to be starving in the streets before we can actually see that the system is is destroying us it's destroying the planet it's not providing for the people and it's it's just serving to increase the wealth and power of, of a few people at the expense of, of the majority of the world I think it might create a little more awareness I don't think it will enough to matter I think the average person is just so indoctrinated and ingrained having this ingrained into their brain that well, even in, even it is, it even is, very intelligent people it is yeah well, I'd like to go back to what Jackson said in that the system's already failing the vast majority of the people. People are already being drained every day and going to work and not being able to pay their bills. So, I mean, it's already failing those people. What, who it's really going to hurt if the system comes down is obviously a lot of people are going to starve and the middle class is going to lose a lot of its privilege. We're talking about, we're talking about I mean, even the majority of the working class. I mean, never, never mind the ruling class or the corporations or whoever. I mean... Most of most average people would rather go down with this ship than 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 do any do any of those other you know I'm I'm no dirty commie and I'm gonna I'm gonna prove it by you know basically going down with everything else. It's considered I guess heroic or patriotic. Yeah. So. Uh, and I think that political parties like the Democrats will continue. To just pacify people with just enough and suppress any sort of revolution from the bottom up. Well, it's interesting you use the the metaphor of going down with the ship because obviously that assumes that we're all on the same ship. Well, we're all on the same planet. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, the, we the working class is going to go first. Obviously. Well, we're on the steerage decks. We, we're the ones who get flooded first. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that that's... I mean, even then, even then, most working-class people are going to say, you know, I, I'm willing to give my life for Bill Gates. I, I think... True the, American. I think the only way to change things is to make people aware on a large scale of what's really going on. And your your question was, does everything have to collapse and does everything have to be just completely ruined for people to begin to notice? I don't know if that will have an effect really either way. You you're gonna get maybe some people, but you're gonna get some people just just by talking to them like what we're doing right here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be I think comparable either way. I mean, to me, it's, I think it's a two-prong effect, and we'll go back, we'll, we'll stick with the analogy of the sinking ship, because we're running out of time here, and we don't really have time to paint another picture. I mean, I mean, first of all, I see, if the ship is sinking, that creates an urgency to change things. Obviously, people also have to know that the ship is sinking. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's stories, I mean, obviously, I... You know, in middle school, I sort of geeked out, you know, reading up on the trivia about the Titanic, which I think is still sort of a romantic story that people read a lot about. And really, the first the first handful of lifeboats that left Titanic had only a handful of people on them. They couldn't convince these rich people in first class to get in the lifeboats. They did not believe the ship was sinking. Obviously, the ship was so big and so far removed from the water below them, it didn't seem to be sinking. 
Yeah. And obviously there was there was heat and electricity in their cabins, and that was a lot more pleasant than being out in that frigid winter air. So they said, I'm going back to bed. I don't think that's true. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to get people who, who are still enjoying, because the, the heat and the lights are still on in this system. The ship might be sinking, but it hasn't flooded out the boiler room yet. And so people still have light, and they still have heat in their cabins, and they're not really interested in the lifeboats because they know it's going to be dark and cold out there, and they're not convinced they need to do it yet. To go back to a point I was making, uh, you are, in order to have a different system, going to have to, to a large scale, re-educate the public. Now, you look at what happens in countries that are, that are in gross desperation, like uh, Nazi Germany that comes up uh, some sort of messianic leader, what, what is the easier option? Re-educating the entire public or devoting yourself to a new leader, someone to assume the power vacuum? I mean, yeah, and that's the important thing to me. There, there are a lot of people, and it, it's just sort of a fashionable answer. Well, you know, if you just make people suffer a little bit of reality, they'll, they'll come around. And the answer is, no, they won't. Not, not if they don't really know better. I mean, obviously, the, the next fascist dictator who will come along and promise to whisk away your problems and, and let you keep your, you know, your consumerist life, if people get desperate enough, they'll jump on that if they don't have anything else to latch on to. Well, just, and, this, just this month, I mean, people, people were desperate, but they weren't desperate enough to uh, vote for anybody but Obama. I mean, I mean you know, I was... I was on KZUM about a month ago talking to a man named Rich Gibson, and he actually he had a nickname for Obama. He actually called him the Obamagog. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Obama's rhetoric was very demagogic. It was very much, I'm going to solve your problems. I am your, messia I am your messiah. Come and vote for me, and everything will be okay. It is okay. true to a certain per percentage of the population, if you're willing to be cutthroat enough, some of you are going to make it, and that's that's what how the those sort of messianic figures survive. Obviously, they are going to save some of the people that are willing to jump through enough hoops and step on enough people to make it. It's, it's funny. I've, I've I was seeing something a couple of weeks ago. You know, the, the real estate prices are going up in Alaska right now. I mean, there's this attitude. Is, you know, well, the, you know, the ruling class will come around before the planet is trashed. And it's just like, but the thing is that, you know, that you have like climate change trashing the planet. It's not going to turn the entire planet into a wasteland. And if anything, a place like Alaska, which is sort of tundra right now, could become a very pleasant, temperate climate with a certain degree of global warming. And the people with power and privilege now have the inside track to buying land up there. And then just fleeing and letting the rest of the world drown. Well, the rest of the world the, is going to. The rest of the world is going to drown, but eventually Alaska is going to go too. It's going to. It's, it's going to be like the last, the last sort of place to be, and they're all going to go there. Yeah, but uh, eventually, everything's going to die. Just eventually. And on that wonderful note, we are coming up on the end of the show. This has been our second lunk communique. Don't worry, the sky is not falling. We'll be back to do this again next week. For Monty, Brian, and Andrew, I'm Jackson, and I'm saying goodbye. We'll see you next week. <laughs>